When we look here in this passage of scripture, as we're, if we remember the last time we, we saw some corrupt priests, and we talked about that, and, and it was really good for me to take a break from, from this book, because it is, it is a tough book. It's a tough book to study. It's a tough book to teach. It's tough to preach. And today, I, I want to share with you, before we get started, that I, I, I'm, <laughs> I preach this with all the grace that I can. Because this really hits where we are as a country. It's where we, it hits us where we are as a church as we look in these, in these um, verses. And as we think about complacency in, our, in all areas of our lives. Now, W.A. Um, A.W. Tozer, he encouraged people wanting and having a, a personal revival to get thoroughly dissatisfied with themselves. Complacency is a deadly enemy of spiritual progress. The contented soul is a stagnant soul. When speaking of earthly goods, Paul could say, I have learned to be content. But when he was referring to his spiritual life, Paul testified that I press on toward the goal. He said, so stir up the gift of God that is in thee. In other words, Paul was never satisfied in his spiritual life. And if we ever get to the point to where we're satisfied with our spiritual life, then we're already complacent. We are not in heaven yet, so we are to pray that God would continue to perfect us and to refine us through his grace and his love. We need that greatly in this world because whether we want to accept it or not, we are all leaders in this world. I've shared this with you. Anyone who is influencing someone else in their development is a leader. And that's every one of us. Yes. You're either leading your children, your grandchildren, your em- employees, superior, uh, in- subordinates. You're leading someone in some way, shape, or form. Some of you wives are leading your husbands. Some of you husbands are leading your wives. We are leaders in this world. And if we're ever content with where we are, then we're going to fail those whom we're leading. When we look here in this passage in verses 10 through 17, the Bible says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another? By profaning the covenant of the fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this being awake and aware. Yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts? And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with your tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor 
receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one? Having a remnant of the spirit and why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You have worried the Lord with your words. Yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he who delights in them, or, and he delights in them, or, where is the God of justice? This is God's holy word. God, as we do come before you, God, as humbly as we know how, we pray that your strength would be with us this day. That you would lead us, help us to be graceful, merciful. Help us, God, to seek your grace and your mercy in everything that we say and do. God, if there's any with us today who doesn't have a relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ, may you speak to their hearts. God, we pray that may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. And we'll give you praise for what's accomplished. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When we look in this passage, right there in verse 10, we see that Malachi makes a strong statement with three questions. First, he asks, why? He asks, have we not all one father? Malachi asks again, have not one God created us? As he is speaking to Israel. And he says, why do we deal treacherously with one another? By profaning the covenant of the fathers. Now, as we look in this, what we begin to see is that all the Israelites, it was clear they understood exactly what, Paul, what Malachi was asking. All the Israelites shared the same father. The Lord was not only their father, but he had also created them. He had formed them as a nation. He had formed them and created them to be his own special people. And God had given his people his law to teach them how to live. He had established a covenant with them to teach them of his faithfulness and love. And at the very heart of this covenant, they were to be faithful to the Lord and they were to be faithful to one another. Faithfulness was at the heart of all of God's laws. As we look through the Ten Commandments, what we find is the, the first half of the commandments, they deal with, with our faithfulness to God and then the rest is our faithfulness to one another. Everything about what God wants us to know is that we are to be faithful to him and faithful to each other. 
But Israel failed to be faithful to the Lord. Because they were not faithful to the Lord, they wasn't faithful to one another. You know, that goes hand in hand. When we find ourselves not being faithful to each other, then chances are we're not faithful to God. And when we find ourselves not being faithful to God, we will not be faithful to one another. It just works that way. It wasn't my design, it's God's design. And and when we don't like it, we just take it up with him. And and I'll let us know something ahead. He doesn't care if we like it or not. (laughs) It's not going to change the fact that it's his law. It's his command. He desires for us to love him with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul. He desires us to love one another as we love ourselves. And you know what I've learned is how I treat you is a reflection of how I treat myself. You know, wives, you know, we we get upset. We we don't like that word submit. And and here's what I truly understand. And none of this is in my notes, but this is what I've come to understand. The husband's wife is to be his biggest cheerleader in this world. If he gets more attention at work than he does at home, then something is not right in the relationship. And this is why, wives, because you help the husband to feel better about himself. When he's got a wife who cheers him on, he feels good, and he will only treat you as good as he feels about himself. If a man is mistreating his wife, it's because he's despising his own self. When a man doesn't care about how he how he treats his wife, it's because he don't care about how he's being treated himself. But if you want him to treat you well, then be his biggest cheerleader. Don't, don't, don't nag him and tell him about the things he's not doing right, but praise him for the things he is doing right. And then pray to God that God will help to open his eyes about all the other stuff. And it will change the marriage. He will then, and I know, I know the condition falls on the man. I understand that. But it's hard for a man who despises himself because it's the world that knocks a man down. And he's been knocked down all day at work and then coming home and getting knocked down again. He's not going to love himself. But if he comes home and he's cherished, he comes home and he's loved, he comes home and he's respected, He's going to treat the one who's doing this to him better than he is the world. It's a reflection. Now, understand this, wives. When we are, it's how we feel about ourselves. When we're we're frustrated, we tend to take it out on the ones we love the most, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying it's right. But the Bible declares that a wife was created to be the helpmate of the man. And it's her job to help him be the man that God wants him to be. And when he does, when she does, then she gets the man that God wants him to be. Man, it just works together. In other words, we're not complete without the wife. And the wife's not going to have the husband she wants or desires if she's not trying to help her husband. You know, it, it, <laughs> until we really see that, we'll take some things that the Scripture teaches as being offensive when it's really for our good and for God's glory. 
When we look here in this passage, it deals with divorce. The entire passage, it deals with divorce. It deals with infidelity. And that's why I shared that, that I, I preach this and I teach this by the grace of God. Because I didn't want to. I wanted to really skip this. About 11.30 last night, I just started all over. Just started all over. And I was up till 2.30. And then again this morning, up early to really work on this. And, and still, I, I don't know that it's complete. When I tell you that God, that, that preparing messages is a struggle with God, it truly is. Because I don't have it in me. I don't have it in me. It's a struggle with God. There, there are passages that we just want to avoid, and this is one I'd love to avoid. But God's not letting me. When we look in this passage, we begin to see the distasteable worship of Israel. When we look in here, the people of Israel had, been de- had dealt treacherously with one another. That word appears five times throughout this passage. That word, it describes breaking of a covenant or an agreement. It also describes as being disloyal to a covenant that we are under. They were desiring, Israel was desiring to marry unbelievers. God's law forbade Israel from marrying unbelieving foreigners. Now, this wasn't, this wasn't just to prove that Israel was better than the foreigners. This was to, to an attempt to keep God's people pure. Now, when we say pure, I hope we really understand what he means. He means purely devoted to God. That's what the attempt was. That's why God didn't want Israel marrying outside because they were unbelievers. They were called foreign because they weren't part of them. Deuteronomy 7, 3 and 4, the Bible says, Nor shall you make marriages of them. You shall not give your daughter to their sons, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. Listen, young girls, young boys, if you are professing to be a born-again Christian, there's no way in the world you're going to convince me that God has sent this man to you and he is not a born-again Christian himself. There's no way you're going to convince me of that. As a matter of fact, this passage has really challenged me to even look at my own policy. I know the church has a policy on marriage. But for me to perform a wedding, this is really causing me to look at my own policy. You see, this has nothing to do with the color of skin. It has nothing to do with color of skin. You know, we'll get more upset as Christians if our children marry outside of their race than we will that our saved children will marry someone who's an unbeliever. Amen. We'll get more upset about that 
when that has nothing to do with the Scripture. The Scripture teaches us here, and I'm seeing it more and more clearly, that God doesn't want an unbeliever with a believer to begin a marriage. Now, there's a difference in you're married, two unbelievers are married, and one gets saved. The Bible says that that sanctified wife can sanctify a husband or that sanctified husband can sanctify his wife. The Bible says that you can help then, but to go into a marriage purposefully, one as a believer and one not a believer. You can't convince me that God is pleased with it. And you cannot, listen, young boys and girls, you're going to school now, and everybody you go to school with is not Lumbee. Everybody you go to school with is not from a Baptist church or a Methodist church or a Holiness church. Some of them are from Mormon churches. Some of them are from Jehovah's Witness churches. Some of them are from a Hindu church. Some of them are from uh, an Arab church. Some of them are from beliefs that are just completely outside of what we believe. And they may be good moral people, but the married one is not pleasing to God. He says here, he says here that his anger would be aroused against you suddenly. God forbade Israel to marry foreign people. It had nothing to do with the color of their skin. It had to do with their spiritual life. So we must be praying now parents and grandparents for our children's spouse we must be praying for them and I want to tell you something girls Boaz is not going to be found at the club you might find his cousin but you're not going to find Boaz at the club if you're looking for a godly man he's not hanging around the club drinking in verse 11 as a matter of fact if we look in verse 11, it says, Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed. God calls it an abomination because their profaning is what the Bible is saying. The holy institution of matrimony. God ordained marriage and marriage should be as God has ordained it to be. That's heavy, isn't it? But, well, God, God here, here they weren't dealing, it wasn't the states for worship just because they were marrying unbelievers, but because they were guilty of hypocrisy. They would cover the altar, the Bible says, with their tears. It, they appeared weeping before the Lord, but they had no intention of changing their ways. They, they continued to disobey the word of God. Even while they were coming to the altar and offering up their gift and their sacrifice with weeping, but they were going away unchanged. The guilty conscience of the hypocrites will only produce insincere worship. And this is unacceptable to the Lord. We must come before the Lord with a heart of repentance. To truly repent of our sin is to turn away from sin. Repentance is not going to God seeking forgiveness and then turning and willfully going back to that sin. That's not repentance. 
If we're truly repentant, we'll want nothing to do with the sin. Now, we may be tempted by it. We may even struggle with it in our lives. But when we find ourselves falling back in it, it'll bust our hearts. Not just because we've sinned, but because we've sinned against God. And it's busted his heart. Folks, if we can willfully sin, I just don't believe we've truly been born again. And if we're coming to God and asking forgiveness for something and we just willfully go back to that without a struggle, then we haven't repented of anything. First Samuel 15 and 22, the Bible says, has the, has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? As in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed than the fat of the rams. It's better that we just obey God's word. No sacrifice we can offer to him. It doesn't matter how much we fast. It doesn't matter what we give up. If, we're, if obedience isn't a part of it, it doesn't matter to him. Amen. The Lord desires our obedience. Our offerings and prayers are worthless. We have no intention of obeying him. But not only do we see the distasteful worship, but we also see their deserted wives. Now, earlier I shared that, that they were marrying unbelievers. They were marrying foreign women. Well, what was taking place was these men of Israel had ignored the covenant of their marriage vow. We look there in verses 14 and 15, we begin to see that they were committing adultery with foreign women and, and they were divorcing their Jewish wives. When he speaks here of the wives of their youth, it's those first, those first wives, those, those Jewish wives, those believing wives, so that they can marry these unbelieving women. Now, first, the Lord says that here he's a witness of the people's marriage. And, and he was a witness to what was taking place. So we must understand that God is a witness to our marriage. He's a witness to our marriage vows. This passage teaches us that God sees how we men, how we're treating our wives. And when, a, when we act treacherously against our spouse, God sees it. The phrase, the wife of you, your youth, you see in verses 14 and 15, it implies that these wives uh, that they were looking at were younger. They were younger, but they were foreigners. They worshiped other gods. Now, since these men had offered a compensation to their wives' fathers, they thought they could treat the wives anyway. They wanted to because they, they were property. They purchased them in their minds. So they were just disregarding their wives and taking on another wife. You know, when you've had that vehicle about six, seven, eight years and you're ready to upgrade, that's basically what these men were doing. Well, I'll tell you, I'm, the grass isn't greener on the other side. And we've got a lot of men in this world 
that are just crazy. They have a wife that adores them, a wife that works with them, a wife that loves them. Did they think they can go and get a younger model, a newer model, and that woman's got to learn all over how to be a wife? And usually within six months of it, he's thinking, what in the world did I do? I heard a man tell me, he's on his third wife now. He said this, he said, I had a good wife. Speaking of his first wife, I had a good wife. And I let myself get in the way. And now I'm on wife number three. Malachi knew that the wife was more than a husband's property. He calls the wife in this passage a companion. A companion is a friend. It's someone who will share go- that you share goals and values with. It's someone that you're committed to. And we've all asked the que- been asked the question, well, do you believe God puts every marriage together? <laughs> I don't know that God puts any marriage together. If you are involved with someone and you truly believe God has sent this person in your life, you better stick with that person. But this person that you're saying God is sent in your life, you better know God doesn't go against his word. God is not a liar. He's not the father of lies. And if they don't fit what God's word says, then God hasn't sent them. I believe God allows our, our uh, we, we to pass each other's um, paths. I believe everyone, what God will do is give us the choice to choose. And he may send someone that he, would, that he knows that we'd be compatible with, that we'd have a good life with, may pass by us. And whether we reach out to that person or not, that's up to us. I don't know that God actually puts people together, but I know God plays a part in this. But God sees the decision we make. And marriage is a commitment. We want to try to explain our way out of this thing and make an excuse and justify our situations. But I want to let you know that if we've committed to marry someone and we've given ourselves to them through the vows, then then you know God expects us to honor that covenant that we've made. He doesn't expect us to easily walk away from it. Marriage isn't, a, isn't about lovey-dovey feelings because feelings come and go. Entering into a marriage is saying that we take our spouse, that wedded wife or husband, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poor in sickness and in health, to love and cherish till death do us part. And in doing this, we're pledging our faithfulness to our spouse so we don't enter into a covenant like this light. And there's a reason why the Bible says in this passage that God hates divorce. There in verse 16. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. Now, divorce itself isn't sin. But what leads to divorce is sin. As a matter of fact, God granted divorce because of the hardness of men's heart. In other words, because of the sinfulness of man's heart. 
God granted divorce. But it was never meant to be from the beginning. God hates divorce for for good reasons because he realizes the havoc that it creates in the lives of people. It just tears people apart emotionally and spiritually. It destroys the family unit itself. And we have done very well as a, as a country that where we, we've understood that families look different now. We, we've accepted the fact that we're all different. We're all flawed and every situation is different. And, we've, and fa- the family unit looks different. We have blended families. We have, we have families that are estranged. We got titles for all of it. But it's because of divorce that, that we have all of these different titles for what is supposed to be just the family unit. Divorce doesn't only tear people apart emotionally and spiritually but divorce breaks the spiritual bond that's formed between a husband and a wife because once we become married we've become one spiritually we've become one and that is broken apart spiritual bond between a husband and a wife is meant to be a picture of the bond between God and Israel between Christ and the church and when divorce enters it shows the world that Christ can be separate from the church. Next to a personal commitment to God, marriage is the most important commitment an individual can make. And God makes the covenant, or God takes the covenant of marriage seriously. We must guard our our marriages. And in guarding our marriages, our marriages are always evolving. We are not the same people we were 20 years ago. I'm not the same person I was 20 years ago. So as I change, as we change, we must work hard to keep our commitment to our spouses growing. Now, here's the reality. The reality is that we're all flawed people. I've said this before. One person can't do enough for two. In order to keep the marriage going. If one person tries to do everything. It's just not going to survive. It takes two people being willing to do whatever it takes. You want to know how someone makes it 50 years? Because they decided at some point. We've got to do whatever it takes. To make this right. You know how it works two years? Because you've decided we're going to suffer through and with whatever it takes. You know how it gets to 10 years? Because the two people have come together and said, whatever it takes. That's the secret. That's the secret. It's got nothing to do with the changes that our physical appearance makes because we're all going to change. I don't look nothing like I did when Iola married me. And I'm 60 pounds heavier than what I was when she married me. I don't look nothing like that. I really don't want to go back to that. I don't want to be the man that she married. I want to be the man that God is working on now. So it's not about all of those things. It's about being willing to grow together, doing whatever it takes. Now, in saying that, while God hates divorce, he also hates sin. And just as he's issued grace and forgiveness for sin, there's grace and forgiveness for divorce. 
Listen, folks, when God forgives us and he makes us right, it's as if we've never sinned. He casts it away from us, and we should also cast it away from them. Folks, there's no second-class Christians in God's eyes, and there should be second-class Christians in the church's eyes. We shouldn't have second-class church members, and we should never make anyone to feel that way. That we shouldn't even be putting the labels of the divorcee on people. They're just people. And there's a reason for this. Because if not for the grace of God, we would all be divorced. If not for the grace of God. Because every man in here and every woman in here, at some point or another, has given their spouse, in their minds, justification for walking away. Or we just felt like, maybe I need to walk away. Save for the grace of God. I thank God for his grace. Don't you? Don't you? I thank God for his grace. Because if it weren't for his grace, I wouldn't be here today. If it weren't for his grace, I wouldn't love you. If it weren't for his grace, you wouldn't love me. As a matter of fact, if it weren't for his grace, you wouldn't even know me. (laughs) It's all the grace of God. And we can't look at people because their struggle in one area is different than my struggle. And when they decide to remarry, they haven't committed this gross sin that we can't look at them and they can't serve the Lord. That's not the case there. When they decide to remarry, the, chance, the prayer is that they've whatever messed up the first marriage, that it doesn't interfere with the second marriage. And they display God's grace in that marriage. I, I'm trying to get off of this, but this is what the scripture says. We've got to get down to verse 17. And this last, pat, this last thing it says here that we start to see some distorted words. You know, we, we've seen the, the deserted wives and we've seen the distasteful worship. Now, let's, as we look here in verse 17, we begin to see some distorted words. It's almost as if there's a shift here. It's almost like the paragraph changes. As a matter of fact, some, some writers will take verse 17 and, and connect it to chapter 3. And... It's some writers don't. It just depends on who you're reading behind. But, but what it says here is that you have wearied God, the Lord with your words. Yet you say that in what way have we wearied him? In that you say everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? So Malachi here is telling the people you're doing nothing but stressing God. You're worrying him. You know, can God really be stressed? Can God really be wearied? I don't think God can be wearied, but I think he can get almost fed up with, with, with us and our continual disobedience. Because the Bible tells us at some point if we continue, he'll just turn us over to a reprobate mind. He's just had enough of it. Well, here in Malachi... <coughs> They, ask, they have the nerve to even ask the question. They have the nerve to, to really 
as they are continuing in sin, totally disregarding God's words and commandments, uh, Malachi here questions them this in verse 17. Why uh, you have wearied the Lord? And they're asking him back, how have we done this? Well, isn't that bold and arrogant? You know, I understand I'm not perfect. So when someone questions me, I'm learning and I'm learning and I'm learning that they're not out of line for questioning me because I'm not the ultimate authority. But when we question what God has said to us, it's an act of total disregard for his authority. Now, I grew up with a father who, if he told me to do something and I questioned him, more times than not, his answer was because I said so. And that was sufficient. We don't live in that day, do we? <laughs> we don't live in that day. Psychology says if you don't tell your children why you're telling them to do something, they won't understand why they're doing it. So they really won't learn anything from it. I learned a lot. When daddy said because I said so, I learned a lot. What I learned was there was consequences if I didn't do what he said. You know, since I've been here, I'm going to admit this. Since I've been here, I've been questioned about some decisions. And I've taken some of it, maybe in some of your eyes, most of it personal. As that you were challenging my authority as the pastor. Well, my wife tells me that my tone lets her and my daughter know how they are going to respond to me. And your tone lets me know whether you're just questioning to find out information or whether you actually are challenging my authority as the pastor. So I think that's something we keep in mind because the tone here in this passage is that of them questioning God's authority. Whenever we question God's authority, then we have disregarded his authority. Amen. We've crossed the line. Amen. We don't have the right to question the creator of the universe. Amen. We don't have the right to challenge his authority Amen. for anything that his word says. Amen. Now, we have the right to go to our father and say, Father, help me with this. I don't know how, and I, how is it that I'm supposed to look in this? And he will open up the windows of heaven and help us to really see his word. But when we go to him as they have went, when they've been utterly disregarding God, well, how have we done this? You know, God graciously, he explains it to them. <laughs> they had accused God of endorsing evil and failing to punish evildoers. They, they were accusing God of saying that evil was good. The people were saying that since there was no judgment that had been fallen down upon those who were breaking God's law, then God must have been satisfied with, with what they were doing. So they, he really couldn't care less what they'd done. You know, have we ever thought the same? God, how is it that this person who loves you and given everything to you, that, that all of this befalls them, and then that one out there that's, that's going wicked and living any kind of way seems to be prospering? 
Yeah, we find ourselves doing that from time to time. I would caution us. I would caution us. Make sure our tone is right. (laughs) Make sure we're asking our father instead of challenging his authority. Israel went so far as to ask, where is the God of justice? Well, it's a grave mistake to think that God is not a God who will judge sin. It's a grave mistake to think that God rewards the wicked. When the wicked appear to prosper, it's important that we keep in mind that God sees and he knows all and and that he is a God of justice. God's word makes it perfectly clear that the judgment is coming. As a matter, it's only a matter of time before the wicked will meet their fate. Revelation 22 and 12, the Bible says, And behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. To give everyone according to his work. Listen, if you're here today, I want you to know this. The Bible declares that it's appointed once on the man to die. And then the judgment. To think that God is going to let you skate by. To think that God's going to let believers skate by. I want you to know when you're looking at other believers who are, who are falling by the wayside or who are, who are not living up to the standards you think a Christian should live up to, I want you to know none of us ever live up to the standard of Jesus Christ. Amen. And we're going to stand in account for it. And you'll stand in account for your own. Don't ever think that someone's going to get away with sin. God's got an account We'll stand before him at the Bema seat of Christ and we'll receive the rewards for what we've done in his name and what we've done to give him glory. But we're also going to see rewards that he intended for us to have. But we have lost them because of our waywardness. We've lost them because we've done something selfishly. We lost them because we failed to obey his command. And if you stand before him at that great white judgment that great white throne judgment, and you don't know him as Lord and Savior, you'll receive your reward. He'll just give you the reward that you've asked for, and that is depart from me, for I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. Don't get caught at that, that great white throne judgment. Don't get caught there hearing him say, depart from me. Don't make the fatal mistake of thinking that God's not judging sin. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. and His ways are higher than our ways. But I want you to know this. He has a love for you that is so wide. It is so wide, it stretches from everlasting to everlasting. It is so long that you can't measure it. It is so deep that he'll reach down in the pits of hell and pull you out. That miry clay that you're in, then you're already in the pits of hell. You're already dead in the trespass of your sins. And he wants to pull you out of it from hell to glory. That's what he did for me. That's what he wants to do for you. The length, the width, the height, the depth of his love is greater than you and I could ever imagine. And he wants you to experience it. 
And I believe if you will begin to experience his love, truly experience his love, you won't want to offer a distasteful worship. That when God brings the woman into your life or the woman comes into your life or the man comes into your life and you believe that God had something to do with this, you won't treat her wickedly or treacherously. I believe if you come to know this love, come to experience this love, you'll see that he is a God that deals with us. And he extends grace. And extends mercy. And even when we stand before him, we won't get what we deserve if we know his son as our Savior. Instead, we'll receive mercy. Instead, we'll receive grace. Don't take a chance. Don't take a chance on leaving this world and not knowing Jesus. Don't take that chance. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Brother Ronald begins to sing the song of invitation. If there's one, if there's one who says, I'm ready to serve him, would you come? He is a God of judgment. Don't be complacent. Don't just wait. Don't be satisfied. Maybe you're here today and you know the Lord is your Savior. And you since you've grown satisfied. This altar is open. You can come and kneel down anywhere across this stage and just talk with God. Tell Him to renew the spirit that is within you. To restore unto you the joy of your salvation. To give you a fervency for His Word and to walk with Him. Thank you for listening to the Reedy Branch Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that this message inspires you to love the gospel, live the gospel, and share the gospel. May God richly bless you this day.